Every year, I go to the doctor and get my annual physical. So just as an aside, let this be a reminder. You should see your doctor if you have not in a while. That is the wise thing to do. Seriously, don't be that guy, that girl who doesn't ever get checked. Okay, that's not why I'm sermon's about today. But at my annual physical, the doctor, she does all sorts of tests. She gets my height, my weight, my heart rate, my blood pressure, and she tries to assess how healthy or unhealthy I am. Is my heart healthy? Are my lungs healthy? Do I have a brain in there somewhere? But here's the challenge. She can't exactly open me up and take a look at my heart or lungs or brain. Well, she could, but that would be expensive and painful. So what she does is she measures things externally to determine how I'm doing internally. For example, taking my blood pressure is one way to check the health of my heart. This is important because the number one cause of death in the world in the U.S. is heart disease. I am sure you know this. Your heart is very important. That's why it's one of the key things they check every year at the doctor. So this morning, I want to check the health of your heart. But not your physical heart, rather your spiritual heart. When the Bible talks about the heart, it's not talking about that beating organ in your chest. Rather, it's talking about the core of who you are, your inner person. The heart is often used interchangeably with the mind because it's the seat of our thoughts and desires and emotions. So that means most of the things about you, good and bad, come down to an issue of the heart. That's why our message is titled this morning, It's a Heart Issue. I want us to take a moment to examine what is going on in our hearts as we continue walking through the book of Exodus. We're coming down the home stretch here through this series. So I want to remind you that Exodus is really chapter 2 of a five-chapter book we refer to as the Pentateuch. What's the first book of the Pentateuch? Somebody tell me. That's right. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and what's the last one? Deuteronomy. In Genesis, you remember, we saw that God made a covenant with a man named Abraham. He promised to make his descendants into a great nation and to be their God. And in Exodus is where we saw those promises fulfilled. God has made a people for himself by bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. Their redemption marked them as God's special people, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Led by Moses, God then brought his people to Mount Sinai. He gave them the law and he taught them how he wanted them to live. Then he explained what they needed to do to maintain a relationship with a holy God. This involves some very particular instructions on building this fancy tent called the tabernacle and instituting the priesthood, which involves sacrifices and rituals. And right after Moses received those instructions from God, he came down the mountain and what did he find? Thomas, you told him, didn't you? It's bad, real bad, right? The whole golden calf incident. They broke the Ten Commandments. I mean, the ink had barely dried. And the people had already demonstrated an inability to obey God. Despite their disobedience, Moses went before God and interceded for the people, and the covenant was recommitted to. And now that they're back on track, Moses is going to finally give the people those detailed instructions that he received on the mountain. And he's going to call them to put them in action. And build the tabernacle, designing each part as God commanded. That's what chapters 35 through 39 are all about. So once again, we're going to take on a large section of this book. We're going to hit each piece really quick. 
And then I want to show you how this section can help us to examine our hearts today. Look with me at Exodus chapter 35. Look at verses 1 through 3. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. So before construction work could get started on building the tabernacle, God wanted to remind Israel again about how they should work. For six days, he expected them to work hard for him, but on the seventh day, what he called the Sabbath, they were commanded to rest. And I hope you've noticed by this point just how many times God has commanded, reminded his people about the Sabbath. It's not because he was really worried that they're going to burn out or that he thought they really needed a vacation. It's because the Sabbath was a built-in rhythm to remind Israel of their dependence on God. God organized their weekly calendar in such a way that they would never forget their need for him. But every seventh day, they would literally stop everything to rest and worship. And this was so serious that to break the Sabbath meant death. Why? Why was it so important? Well, I want to come back to that thought at the end and tell you why that was a big deal. But let's, let's keep going. And, and while I read this next section, I want you to notice each time we see the word heart. Exodus 35, look at verses 4 through 10. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded." Then he lists out everything that they're about to make, which we're going to see in a minute. But jump down with me to verses 20 to 29. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women. All who were of a willing heart brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating of offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ramskins or goatskins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skills spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. There's five times right there in this chapter we see the word heart. Why is that word repeated over and over? 
Because God wants us to see the source of generosity. The people were bringing all these contributions for the tabernacle. They were giving their time to work. They were using their giftedness in all sorts of ways. But the source of their giving was their hearts. They were demonstrating their heart's trust in the Lord by willingly giving things away to him. And all the people played a role. Do you see that? Men, women, everyone's coming together to do their part. So this wasn't just about putting some furniture together or following this laundry list of commands and checking off the boxes. No, God wants us to see that this was worship. The people were worshiping God by freely giving to him of their time, talent, and treasure. And we see in the next chapter that the people, they brought so much, they had to tell everybody to stop because they had more than enough. If you follow along in the headings in your Bible, you can see that the end of chapter 35 and all of chapter 36 are about the building of the tabernacle itself. Bezalel and Oholiab, who we met in previous chapters, those were the chief architects and supervisors. They oversaw the construction as they built the curtains and the frame and the bases of the tent itself. A lot of what we see in these chapters is repeated verbatim from earlier chapters we already covered. That's because God wants us to see the people were being obedient. They were following the exact instructions. This was not some kind of freestyle project, but the people were obeying. Look at chapter 37. Here we see the building of the ark. You'll recall that comes first because that's the most important part of the whole thing. It was the sole item that resided in the innermost room called the Holy of Holies. The ark was a golden chest that held a few sacred items like the stone tablets of the law to come. And most importantly, it was the place where God dwelled in all his fullness of his presence. On top of the ark was the lid they called the mercy seat. It served as a sort of earthly throne for God where he dwelled and spoke from above it. So holy was this item that later in the Old Testament when it was being moved, the guy reached out his hand to touch it and died on the spot. We see next in chapter 37 that we're moving out now from the center, from the Holy of Holies to what they simply called the holy place. This was still inside the tabernacle, but it was in the other side of that veil that closed off God on the ark. Here in the holy place resided the table where they placed the bread each day. Then you had the lamp stand and the altar of incense. In chapter 38, we go out another step to outside the tabernacle in the courtyard. Here's where they made sacrifices on the bronze altar. There was also the bronze basin where they could be washed and cleansed. And lastly, you had the curtains and pillars that formed the outer court. At the end of chapter 38, we see a final listing of all the materials collected and used. And it's, it's a lot. It's a lot of gold and silver and bronze and all kinds of stuff. And in chapter 39, we see them making the clothing for the priest. You'll remember how the priest dressed in all that complex, expensive garb. And we said that they were like miniature tabernacles. They represented God to the people and the people to God. They were the mediator. And then the chapter ends with one final summary of the people bringing everything they made to Moses. Here's the last two verses of this section. Look at Exodus 39, verses 42 and 43. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. 
So after all the Israelites had been through, all the mistakes they made, the, the complaining, the disobeying, the golden calf, they finally complete the work. They give of their time, talents, and treasures generously in worship to God, and it all reveals their heart. I want to spend the rest of this message today by now turning from the hearts of the Israelites to your heart and my heart today. And I want us to use those three areas of giving that we saw from the Israelites, your time, your talents, and your treasures. And I want us to seriously examine what they say about our hearts and how we too can give generously like God's people did in Exodus. Here's the first question covering that first area of generosity today. Number one, where do you give your time? Where do you give your time? For Israel, their time was literally ordered by God. We've already seen in Exodus that their calendar revolved around what God had done. The first day of the year, New Year's Day, was the day they left Egypt. God wanted his people to see that their time was his, and that all of their life was to be lived in worship to him. And the greatest expression of this truth was the Sabbath. Every Friday at sundown to Saturday night at sundown, the people were forbidden from doing any work. They were to rest and worship. Uh, this command was so serious that violating it brought the death penalty. Why? Why was the Sabbath I mean, such a big deal to God? Well, it wasn't just about taking a day off of work. It wasn't just about resting their bodies, though that was important. Primarily, the Sabbath was about devotion to God. Think about it. To, to take a day off work was an act of faith. These people lived without any of the technology we have today. They had to work for their food, their shelter, everything they had, they had to make. They could have easily worked seven days a week. And so to not do work for one day every week, that was a risk. And why would you do that? Why, why would you do that when there's so much to be done it required faith and dependence on God. It was a regular reminder to the people that their lives, their well-being, did not depend on them. But God was in control, and he had it. He had it. And guys, we need that same reminder today, don't we? Now you can imagine there's some debate today as to how Christians should view the Sabbath. It's one of the Ten Commandments. So does that mean we're required to observe it? Does that mean it's a sin if you have to go to work on a Sunday? Can we eat out at restaurants or Sundays or watch football? Or have we already messed the whole thing up because we aren't worshiping on Saturday? <laughs> well, the simple answer is no. As followers of Jesus, we are not required to observe the Sabbath as Israel did under the old covenant. We live under the new covenant with Jesus. Otherwise, those of you who go home to mow your lawn today would be taken out behind the shed next Sunday for your public execution. <laughs> Clearly, something has changed for Christians today. But what is it, and, and, and why, and how? Well, the Sabbath was given as a sign of the Old Covenant, just as circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic Covenant. In the New Testament, under the New Covenant, Christians are never commanded to keep the Sabbath. Even when Gentiles joined the church in the book of Acts, you would think that would have been the time to tell them about this really important day, but they don't do that. In fact, when Paul talks about the Sabbath and how to observe certain holy days, 
He says that it's a matter of conscience. Look at Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul places the Sabbath in the same category as food and drink and and all these old festivals the Jews celebrated. Then you'll remember this from Romans 14, 5 and 6. Paul says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. Do you guys remember those sermons from Romans? Of course you don't. I don't either. Uh, It's been a while. But we did two sermons there about matters of conscience. And and Paul says here that keeping the Sabbath is a matter of conscience. It's not something to judge one another over, but each of us have Christian freedom on this issue. The ultimate reason we're not required to keep the Sabbath, as Israel did, is because it's been fulfilled by Jesus. Jesus said he is Lord of the Sabbath. He said the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And he demonstrated that Sabbath rest pointed ultimately to the eternal rest we have in him. Because we are in Christ, every day is like a Sabbath day made holy to Jesus. And one day when we get to the new creation and we enter our forever rest, that will be like our final Sabbath that will never end. Okay, so what are you saying, man? Are you saying that the Sabbath is just pointless for us today? Listen, no. That's not at all what I'm saying. Rather, I'm saying that like everything under the old covenant with Israel, we need to view it through the lens of Christ and the New Testament. Even though we are not bound to keep the Sabbath by a covenant as Israel was, the Sabbath still has significance for us today. For centuries, Christians have found an important principle, and that's the key word, a principle, in the Sabbath to live out. It's a pattern for the week established by God himself at creation. And if it worked for God, I think it will work for us too. The principle is to work six days and rest one. And I personally believe that this is something Christians should live out. In fact, I think it's something we need for our well-being to live out. I'm guessing that like me, a lot of you have jobs where there's always more work you could do. I, work seven, I could work seven days a week and still have more tasks ahead of me. So to choose one day to not do any work for my job is a risk. It's an act of faith where I'm saying, hey, I can do more with God in six days than I could do on my own in seven. It's a reminder to me that I'm not the Lord of my own schedule or time, but God is the Lord of every part of my life. It's giving him control of your week and your work. Okay, so... What does that look like specifically today? Can I, you know, watch TV? Can I go out to eat at a restaurant? Do I just need to pray all day? Look, I'm not going to tell you exactly what to do because, again, this is a matter of Christian freedom. But I would encourage you to consider how you might apply the Sabbath principle to your life. The goal simply is to worship and rest. That means at least, I think, not working at your job. Okay, taking a day off work every week is vital for your physical, mental, and spiritual health. But it's also more than that. It's doing things that recharge and refuel you for the week to come. That could be things like spending time with family, going outside, taking a nap 
reading a book, fishing, cooking, eating a delicious meal. Most importantly, spending time with God. For most of you, the best day to take a Sabbath is Sunday. We worship on Sunday because Jesus rose on Sunday. The early church celebrated that by meeting every week and calling it the Lord's Day. They didn't call it the Sabbath. But for a lot of us, Sunday is a good day to, to take a Sabbath. That doesn't have to be the case. Some of you work on Sunday like me. Look, I love coming to church. I love being with you, but I'm not going to lie and say that this day is restful. So I try to make Saturday, sometimes Friday, my day. Now, for you, that day may change every week. If you work in the medical field, you may have a different schedule to work around. But look, whatever this looks like in your life, I believe taking one day to rest is the wise thing to do for your body and your soul. And most important of all, it's a regular reminder, just as it was for Israel, that your time is not your time. That every day of the week, every moment should be lived out in worship to God. You depend on him, and he's got it. So let's go back to that question. Where do you give your time? If we were to look through your calendar, your schedule, what would it tell us about your heart? Who or what would we identify as the Lord of your life? Do you work too much? Do you not work enough? Are you being faithful to your church, to your family, to the community? Do you serve and give generously of your time to others? If not, what needs to change? Here's the second question we need to ask this morning to examine our hearts. Number two, where do you give your talents? Your talents. The second way that God led the Israelites to give generously was through their unique abilities. That's what I mean by talents. Building the tabernacle required all sorts of skills. Fabric had to be sun, uh, spun. Metal, metal structures had to be designed. Wood had to be carved. So what did God do? He gave his people the abilities to do those things for him. Now, how did that happen? Did everybody wake up the next morning and say, wow, I have the sudden desire and ability to paint something beautiful and to design some work of art with my hands? I don't think that's how it happened. Rather, it seems the people were already gifted and skilled in these various areas, and they simply were able to use the talents they had already for the glory of God. Friends, it, it works the same way for us. Every person has unique abilities and giftings. I don't care who you are or what you've been told, you are gifted. The way God has designed you is not by accident, but he created you intentionally and particularly for his glory. Your personality, your disposition, your passions, your strengths, even your weaknesses have been given to you by God. And his desire is that you would use those things to serve your neighbor, to advance his kingdom, and bring glory to his name. So let me encourage you, whatever talents you have, find a way to be content in them and then give it to God. Jim Elliott, one of my heroes, was a martyred missionary. He has a simple quote he wrote. He said, wherever you are, be all there. That's so simple and profound. Wherever you are, be all there. Look, you may not work at a job you love. You may not be appreciated or respected for the gifts you have. You may not be paid enough or recognized enough. But wherever you are, be all there. Because that's where God has you for a purpose. 
Look, don't fall into this fallacy of thinking where you say, oh, I'll make a difference for God whenever I get to that point in my life. Like one day, whenever I have this amount of money, whenever I have that amount of time, you know, when life slows down and gets less busy, we always say that, and it never happens. That's because here's the truth. You will never have enough money, you will never have enough time, and you will never have enough resources wherever you are. Be all there. So where do you give your talents? How are you using your unique design and abilities for God? Or are you just using them for yourself and your own gain and comfort? The generous heart gives their time, their talents. And here's the third and last question for us today. Where do you give your treasure? I've got to tell you, this is one of those points that preachers love. Uh, the ball is right down the middle, and I could just nail this out of the park with the world's best sermon on tithing. But I'm not going to do that, okay? I'm going to spare you. And I just will humbly point out that tithing is another example of the Sabbath principle at work. I don't know about you, but I am at a stage of my life where I could use 100% of my income. I don't look at my paycheck every two weeks and think, man, what am I going to do with all this money? This is great. <laughs> that doesn't happen in my house. My kids eat all day and then some. They just keep eating. So for me to give away 10% of everything I make, that's a risk. It's an act of faith. I'm saying to God, God, I believe you can do more than 90% than I can do with 100. And time and time again, my wife and I have seen that to be true. Just like the Sabbath day, tithing is giving up control and declaring that God is the Lord of your money and your stuff. That's what the Israelites did. Moses didn't say, we need some rocks and we need some sticks, we need some dirt. He said, we need gold, silver. Bronze, I need the best jewels you've got. You know that stuff that you could take and you could buy land and property and all this great stuff? No, I need you to give it to me. And they did. They gave more than what was needed. The text tells us over and over they gave out of generous hearts. I'm not sure anything reveals your heart more than how you spend your money. The budget never lies. You will give to what is important to you. Guys, this, this is not a guilt trip. This is not a ploy to get you to give more money to the church. I hope you know that's not my style. You're accountable to God, not to me. But don't miss this simple truth. The way we handle our stuff says a lot about our hearts. The way we handle the stuff we have says a lot about our hearts. So if we pulled out your bank statement this morning, or my bank statement, went down the line, what would we determine is most important to you? What would we find about your heart? And what about the rest of the things God has given you? Tithing is not, I give God 10%, he gets his cut, and then I get to do what I want with the rest. No, a follower of Jesus realizes everything we have belongs to him. What do you have that you earned, that you got? Oh, your home, your car, your stuff, every single thing I own has come from God as a gift, undeserved. He's just loaned it to me so that I can use it for his glory. So to close this morning, how's your heart? If you were to take an honest look at your time, your talents, and your treasure, what does it say that you value the most? Are you stewarding what God has given you for him or for yourself.
I know these are pointed, maybe even painful questions, and I'm, I'm right there with you. Maybe you're even like me, and you're looking at yourself honestly today and thinking, yeah, I could, I could do a better job in some areas. I got, I got some struggles. I'm selfish sometimes with my time, my money, my stuff. But if, if that's you, here's what we need to do today. A lot of times we hear a convicting sermon, and I'm the world's worst here because I've already heard this sermon once today. <laughs> but we hear a convicting sermon, and we think, man, I stink. Oh, I'm such a terrible person. Hey, uh, what's for lunch? Right? Like we feel guilty for a little while, but guilt doesn't change people. Here's what does change people. Grace. Despite our failures and our selfishness, God loves you so much. He gave you his own son. He gave you everything in Jesus. And even today, he continues to pour out his grace and mercy to you every day you wake up. If you're here and you're breathing, grace. And if you will just go to him with your shortcomings and confess your sin, guys, he will change your heart. He'll help you. That's what he wants. So let me challenge you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to take an honest assessment of your life, your time, your talents, and your treasure, no matter how brutal it is. Be honest with yourself. That's where it starts. And ask, is there a particular part of my life that I need to lay at the feet of Jesus? Is there an area of my heart that I've been holding back for myself because I'm too afraid or I'm too selfish to give it up? Today's the day to give it all to Jesus. Go to him and ask him to take it and to use it all for his glory because he can do so much more with it than you can. In fact, let's do that now. Would you bow your head in prayer with me?